This is Sequoia Ellis from Rock Allen, Illinois, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So, if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. I want to take the time to thank everyone who is supporting the production of California Dreaming on Patreon. Each month I'm getting closer and closer to someday hopefully being able to dedicate more of my time to the creation of content for your listening pleasure. I am taking a quick break from researching for the bonus for this month so I could try and get this episode out in a more timely manner as you can see, it's already late. So, of those of you who do subscribe to Patreon, hang tight. Your bonus is on its way as well. And this week, I would like to thank Susan B., Anna W., Catherine K., Mike B., Melissa M., Virginia M., Maureen S., and Amanda N. for bumping up her Patreon pledge a couple of tiers. Your cards and perks will be arriving in your mailboxes very shortly. And again, thank you so much for your continued support of our little show. Many of you listening heard me thank you for either your comments or your contributions to the James Bolger series, as well as the Halloween episode where we talked about castle doctrine and stand your ground laws. I also thank the top 50 contributors on the Facebook discussion page, and it was just really adorable how so many of you really enjoyed hearing your names read along with your comments, and it really means a lot to me that you feel very close and connected with all of us. So. Anytime I get the chance to ask questions or we can debate a topic, I will try to include your comments and opinions when I can. I posted about the shout outs last week, and so I wanted to take the time to again thank the following people for all the love and support you've shown to the show, and I will try to tackle the last names as well this time. Beth Ann Truman, the lovely host of the Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast, Dee Dee Jeanson gets a second shout-out this week. Brad Dunshee, the host of the Mattachine podcast, a show that recounts the stories about the struggles and the triumphs of the LGBTQ community. If you would like to search it, it's spelled M-A-T-T-A-C-H-I-N-E, the Mattachine podcast. Cynthia Drager, thank you for spreading the word about the show. L. Smith, it does feel like a big friend fest on the page sometimes when we're not bickering, right? Stephanie Sabin, I adore you too, Steph. Tracy Davis, who clearly needs a vacation from work to keep up with her social media. 
Carolyn Cartier, another big, huge thank you to you and your best friend for all of your contributions to the Halloween bonus about your friend, Brandon Ketzdever. Tanya Todd, my wild, wacky, crazy Canadian cat lady. What's up, girlfriend? Dee Dee Edwards, sending love your way, and I hope you are well. Monica Sockwell, Diagostino. Did I get that right? Diagostino. Elizabeth Coots, rhymes with boots. Gotcha. Nikki Hammes. Hammes. Last time I said Hames, but it's ham mess. Ham as in smoked ham. Mess as in my life's a mess. Rebecca Jane, who landed at the number one spot in our top contributors. So, yes, basically stalking all of us on the page. Angela Martin, trying to keep up with everyone here. Melissa Cox, everyone who takes the time to listen and comment does mean a lot to me. Susan Beeson, thank you for commenting and thank you for listening. Jen Moxley, don't be embarrassed. And thank you again for all of your research a few weeks back. Belky Garrido, thank you for always commenting and for your support of the show. And I don't think I can pronounce the first part of your hyphenated last name, so I'm going to pass. Jen Tysick, also feeling the need to step up her social media game. Dave Weir, landing at an abysmal sixth place out of the thousand plus members. You're going to have to knock some of my favorite ladies out of the way to get to first place. Rebecca Jane, Mar Woods, Jen Moxley. Lindy Beaumont, and Andrea Will. Good luck with that, Dave. Jody Schneider, thank you for going against your no-commenting role and commenting on this. Kim Cleveland, Kimmy, who's always giving me love on Twitter and took some time to comment on my shout-out thread on Facebook. Sending you and your fur baby, who is struggling, lots of love today. Deborah Taylor, thank you for wanting to be a part of this with me and all of us. And lastly, absolutely not leastly, Nikki Thatcher, the host of the Strictly Homicide podcast and one of my dearest friends who I just adore. Oh, and I was just kidding about Nikki being last because Lindsay Gonzalez made a last minute comment. So thank you for getting yours in on time. And also one of the very few people on our page who I happen to know in real life, my dog park friend, Tina Egan. Thank you for taking a chance on the show. And oh, that also reminds me, I need to thank one listener on Instagram. Tragic Tracy, you made me smile so much this week. And you're always there to remind me not to forget about my friends over on Instagram too. Thank you so much to everyone. Thank you for all the love that you're showing the show. It is overwhelming. I cannot thank you enough. So today's story is going to be a little different because it is unsolved and it's a bit of a mystery. I watched a show about this story a few weeks ago on Investigation Discovery and I wondered why I hadn't heard of him previously. His story is very reminiscent of some very high profile cases that we've all heard on several podcasts. His story is puzzling and we've heard several puzzling stories stories that just leave us scratching our heads and I want to talk about a couple of them that you may have heard about and this one we're going to discuss today is similar yet I haven't heard it talked about on a podcast at least none that I know of anyway 
This is one of those stories where you feel like this person went missing in that split second moment when nobody was watching or nobody noticed. Like they were within a millisecond of not going missing. You know what I mean? I covered one like this earlier this year with Justin from the Mysterious Circumstances podcast, the August 30th, 2013 disappearance of Bryce Las Pisa in Castaic Lake, California. It's like people saw him and he was making phone calls and he was encountered by roadside assistance when he ran out of gas. He was spoken to by police. He talked to his parents a couple of times. But still, at some point, in between it all, he vanished without a trace, leaving behind his crash vehicle and a mess of unanswered questions. What was wrong? What was going on? Where were you going? Why are you not driving? Why were you parked there for so long? What were you thinking? How are you feeling? Why is this happening? If you haven't listened yet, you got to scroll back to January. It was a bonus between episodes 27 and 28. Another vanishing that seems to have happened in a moment where everyone seemed to be looking the other way, only three weeks before Bryce Laspisa went missing, was the August 9th, 2013 disappearance of Brandon Lawson, somewhere between San Angelo, Texas and Crowley, Texas. And this is a case that many of you have probably heard. I want to say he was on the very first episode of the Vanished podcast, but I can't exactly be sure it was the first, but I first heard it way back then. Since then, his story has been on a bunch of shows. Generation Y, Cold Case Murder Mysteries, Trace Evidence, True Crime Garage, Obscura, Several more if you search his name in your podcast directory. He's the one that made that infamous, indecipherable 911 call. There have been several iterations of what is actually being said on the 911 call because it isn't really clear what some of the words are. And I've read a pretty good transcript of it on Reddit and what's speculated to have been said that seems to make some sense. There were words that simply could not be deciphered, but... This is what the Reddit user, Dysentery Gary, said he thinks is on the 911 call. The operator says, 911 emergency. Brandon says, yes, I'm in the middle of the field. We're safe, just pushing guys over. We're out here going towards Abilene on both sides. My truck ran out of gas. There's one car here. A guy, Cha, and it's kind of cut out, to the woods. Please hurry. The operator says, Okay, now run that by me one more time. And Brandon cuts the operator off and says, They will not talk things over. I accidentally ran into them. And the operator says, Oh, you ran into him. Okay. Now an unknown voice in the background seems to say the word detective. Now dysentery Gary thinks that maybe this came from the 911 operator's end of the call. Then Brandon says, shot the first guy. Then what's heard on the line is believed to be gunshots. The operator says, do you need an ambulance? Brandon says, yeah, no, I need the cops. 
but it's speculated that somebody else said the word yeah. The operator says, okay, is anybody hurt? And then what is believed to be Brandon in a whisper says the word crap. The operator repeatedly says, hello, hello, hello. Dysentery Gary used some fancy audio stuff to carefully listen to some of the things that were hard to decipher, like the word staper or stater, which aren't really words that mean anything, especially in this context. He believes Brandon was saying the word safe. Andy thinks that Brandon is with someone because twice on the call, he says the conjunction we're as in we are. The first time he says it, is when he thinks he says we are safe in the place where we've been thinking he's been saying staper or state trooper or stater. He then uses it again when he says we're going out to Abilene on both sides, meaning he thinks that they, whoever he is with, are on both sides of the road going in the same direction. He does get into some in-depth reasons how he came up with the rest of the transcript of the 911 call, but it's a lot of minutia. But as the timeline goes, Brandon left his home in San Angelo around 11.53 p.m. on the evening of August 8, 2013. He and his wife, Ledessa, got into an argument and he told her that he was going to go to his dad's house in Crowley. Seven minutes later at midnight, Ledessa called Brandon and asked him to come home. At 12.10 in the morning, Brandon's brother, Kyle, stopped by to check on Ledessa and his brother's children. At 12.34 and 12.36 a.m., Ledessa missed two calls from Brandon because she was charging her phone in the car because I believe Brandon took their only charger with him. At 12.38 a.m., Brandon called Kyle to tell him his truck ran out of gas. At 12.40 a.m., Kyle called Ledessa to tell her that Brandon ran out of gas. At 12.48 a.m., Ledessa missed a third call from Brandon. Then six minutes later, at 12.54 a.m., Brandon made that 911 call that I just read to you. Four minutes later, at 12.58 a.m., another 911 call is made by a motorist to report that Brandon's vehicle is a hazard on the road as it is partially blocking the lane. At 1.10 a.m., Kyle arrived at the location of Brandon's truck but does not find Brandon. An officer arrived at the scene at about the same time. Eight minutes later, at 1.18 a.m., Kyle's girlfriend, Audrey, received a call from Brandon in which he tells her that he is bleeding. Audrey and Kyle attempt a search for Brandon to no avail. Ledessa continues to miss several more calls from Brandon. By 3 a.m., Brandon's phone either dies or is shut off, and there is no trace of Brandon ever seen, nor is he ever heard from again. Somewhere in the night, in those moments, in between phone calls and passing motorists, Brandon Lawson vanished, and it continues to puzzle all of us to this day. Another story, kind of similar and just as bizarre, is another Brandon, Brandon Swanson, who went missing on May 14, 2008, in Porter, Minnesota. He was at a friend's house in the town of Lind, and they were celebrating the night before he was set to graduate from a year-long technical school program where he studied wind energy. 
Brandon was said to have consumed some alcohol, but was not excessively intoxicated. Sometime between 10.30 and 11 that night, Brandon left that house in Lind and headed over to another friend's house in Canby to visit with some classmates that he was not going to see anymore after graduation. He was said to have had at least one shot of whiskey at this party, and he did not stay very long. He left sometime after midnight to head to his home in the city of Marshall. So, Highway 68 is the direct route from Canby to Marshall, and Brandon was known to have been very familiar with it, having driven that way many times. But it does not look as though he got onto that highway and headed in the direction of his home. Instead, it appeared as though he took some gravel roads situated to the northeast of Highway 68 in order to get home. It's been speculated that he did this to avoid contact with any law enforcement because of the alcohol that he had consumed over the course of the evening. The gravel roads, however, are not parallel to the highway, but rather they are at about a 45 degree angle to it. And in order to follow the relative path of the highway, he would have had to make several turns in sort of a zigzag pattern to keep along the direction. Brandon eventually wound up on a maintenance road for approximately a mile or 1.61 kilometers that cut between two large crop fields. He tried to turn back south to return to the gravel road, but he missed the field approach and his vehicle ended up in a ditch. It wasn't very deep, but it was steep, so the frame of his car got hooked up on the ditch bank, so he was unable to back out or to proceed forward. This was at approximately 1.15 in the morning. Later inspection of the vehicle determined that it ended up there at a very low speed, there was no damage to the car, and there was no evidence that he was injured inside the vehicle. Brandon first tried calling some of his friends, but nobody answered, so he had to break down and call mom and dad. That call was made at 1.54 a.m., he told them that he was stuck in a ditch somewhere between Marshall and Lind and gave his parents directions to his location. Between 1.54 a.m. and 2.17 a.m., several phone calls were made between Brandon and his parents. He told them that he was on the left side of the road off of Highway 23, but based on the direction his car was facing when it was found, it was determined that he was confused and mistook Highway 68 for Highway 23. All the while, his mom and dad are driving around looking for him or his car, but they can't find either one of them. So obviously, Brandon is completely discombobulated. He has no idea where he's at, and he's giving his parents all the wrong directions, most likely because he was tired or because he'd been drinking or he was not as familiar with the roads as he thought he was. All the roads and intersections kind of looked the same. Whatever the case, he was sending his folks on a wild goose chase for him. Brandon was convinced that he was near Lind. So by 2.17 a.m., he's become very frustrated with his parents, and he told them that he was just going to start walking towards Lind. And his parents were like, okay, We'll meet you at the Lindwood Tavern. Five minutes later, at 2.23 a.m., 
Brandon got on the phone with his dad on a call that would last for 47 minutes. He told his dad that he was walking along a gravel road away from Marshall towards Lind. At some point, he told his dad that he was going to leave the road and walk through what he called a cross country, which I'm assuming is land that is anything but road. Dirt, fields, grass, prairies, I have no idea. I've only known cross country to be a track and field event. He told his dad that it would be quicker than following the road. He also told his dad that he ran into some fence lines and that there was water nearby. And then, suddenly, at 3.10 a.m., Dad heard Brandon shout the exclamatory phrase, Oh, sh-. Dad thinks he heard some kind of sound indicating that Brandon slipped or fell, and then the phone went dead. No other contact was made with Brandon, and no trace of him has ever been found. His parents searched for him for more than three hours until dawn. That's when they contacted the Lyon County Sheriff's Office to officially report him missing, which he still is to this day. And the last case that I want to talk about before I delve into our story today is the one that stood out to me the most in its similarities. It is the one that came to my mind first when I heard about the disappearance that I'm going to talk to you about today. It's also one that's been featured on several podcasts. I believe I first heard it on a very early episode of True Crime Garage. It's been told on Trace Evidence, Insight, Thinking Sideways, Cold Case Murder Mysteries, and he even has a dedicated podcast about his disappearance called Come Back. I am speaking of the 2006 disappearance of Brian Schaefer in Columbus, Ohio. Brian was a medical student at Ohio State University who had gone out with some friends on the night of March 31, 2006 to kick off the start of spring break. This is the timeline of events of that evening. At 9.30 p.m. that night, Brian met his friend Clint at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, just a bar near campus which is no longer open for business. About 25 minutes later, Brian called his girlfriend Alexis to tell her that he loved her. Between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m., Brian and Clint are bar hopping in what is known as the Arena District of Columbus, and this is taking them into the early morning hours of April 1st. Around 12.30 a.m., they meet up with Clint's friend Meredith, and she gave them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna. At 1.15 a.m., The three friends, Brian, Clint, and Meredith, are captured on video surveillance going up the escalator and entering the Ugly Tuna Saluna. At 1.50 a.m., Brian is captured on surveillance footage speaking with two girls outside the bar. Clint claims that five minutes after Brian is seen talking to those two girls, he saw Brian back inside the bar but lost track of him in the crowd. Five minutes after that, at 2 a.m., the bar is starting to close and both Clint and Meredith begin looking for Brian so they can all leave. After 10 minutes of searching, they were unable to find Brian anywhere in the bar, so they assumed he must have walked home. At 2.15 a.m., 
Clinton Meredith are captured on video surveillance, leaving the bar. So the windup is this. Surveillance footage showed Brian entering the bar, but never captured any images of him leaving. Every single person who entered that bar that night was accounted for on video footage, except for Brian. There have been reports of Brian seen walking back into the bar after speaking with those two women, and in the footage, Brian can be seen moving in a direction off camera towards the direction of the door that leads back into the bar, and he ostensibly re-entered, but it actually cannot be seen if he did or not. Clint claims that he did, but the last images of Brian anywhere on surveillance video was the video of him near the top of the escalator outside the bar talking to the two women. He is never captured on any other video footage anywhere, and all of them were checked. Somehow, Brian seemingly vanished into thin air in the time and space between friends, conversations, and video surveillance. It's a disappearance that has baffled investigators, his friends, family, and us podcast listeners for more than 12 and a half years now. And that's exactly what I want to talk to my dreamers about today. That moment, that sliver of time and space, that chasm, that hole in our reality that seemingly imbibed an entire human being when nobody was taking notice, when everyone collectively was looking another way, and then they just poof, disappeared. Not a trace, not a hint, not a clue, not an inkling of what in the world became of an entire human being. It's absolutely fascinating. I started off listening to lots of missing persons cases on podcasts. After a while, I began getting frustrated with the lack of finality in it all. I started to feel like I needed a beginning, the middle, and an end to a story. And I still listen to missing persons stories, but you notice I don't tell about many of them here on this show. Every once in a while we do. We'll have an unsolved case, but by and large, we are meant to tell a tale. We journey through it together. We reach an end. And we tie up all the loose ends and move on to the next. We don't get that completeness when it comes to missing persons. But of all stories, theirs certainly are very much deserving of our time and our attention. And it is the disappearance of a young man who went missing in a beachfront community in Southern California, not too far away from where I live. It's just a straight shot 20 miles directly west of me. Go any further, and you'll walk right into the Pacific Ocean. And that's what we're going to discuss today in today's 69th episode of California Dreaming, The Disappearance of Michael Van Zandt. This story begins on a nearly perfect spring day, March 5th, 2016, in the city of Lancaster, California, a charter city in the northern portion of Los Angeles County located in the Antelope Valley in the western portion of the Mojave Desert. 
It is the 31st largest city in the state with a population of just over 168,000 residents, and it is sister cities with Palmdale to the south. And if any of this is sounding vaguely familiar, if you listen to episode 60, the case involving abduction and rape survivors Tamara Brooks and Jackie Maris, that story took place near the same area. 36-year-old Michael Van Zandt was enjoying the weekend with his three children, Keaton, Jaden, and Kylia. According to his loved ones, Michael was very dedicated to his kids and enjoyed an active role in their lives, despite the fact that he and their mother, Christiane, were no longer together. Michael and his brothers, Tyler and Charles, did not have strong male role models in their lives growing up. So in turn, Michael understood the importance of his place in his children's lives, knowing what it was like to not have that in his youth. So he took being a dad very seriously. By the time Michael was two, his mother and father had divorced, and he grew up primarily in the care of his mom, along with his brother and stepbrother, far away from Lancaster. They were raised in Pleasant Lake, Michigan, which is an unincorporated community in Jackson County, located within the lower peninsula of the state, in the Henrietta Township, south of the lake for which it is named. Population? just shy of 2,300 residents. As you can imagine, the boys grew up participating in all the lake activities, fishing, boating, anything you find in a lake community. So yeah, their mother raised three boys pretty much on her own. Michael had spent that morning of the 5th at a basketball game that Jaden, Michael and Crescene's middle son, had played in, and they all went out to lunch. And I will expand on the timeline of that day in just a few minutes. When Michael was growing up, he had a proclivity for all things U.S. military related. So as soon as he graduated from high school in 1999, he enlisted in the Air Force, something his family knew that he was going to do. And he thrived in his life in the military. After completing basic training in the state of Texas, he was stationed in Japan and in Korea. It's like the cliche or one of the things that recruiters tell you when young people are contemplating enlistment. You get to see the world. And for Michael, it was really a dream come true. Being from that small town in Michigan, he and his brothers only ever talked about these foreign places. Now he was getting to see them and experience them and live them. And in very short order, within six months of getting out of high school, Michael met Crescene on Yokota Air Base in Japan in January of 2000. They came to find that they were both from Michigan, raised only about an hour and a half apart from each other. So meeting thousands and thousands of miles away on the other side of the planet, it was fate, or kismet, as they say. The couple hit it off immediately, Finding one another in Japan and being from nearly the same place, I can imagine it brought a great deal of comfort and ease while they were in each other's company. They began dating and in October of 2001, Michael, who was 20 years old at the time, and Crescene, who was 18, decided to tie the knot. 
So yeah, they were quite young. But in the few pictures that I've seen, it's obvious that they were quite the happy couple. And then in pretty quick succession by 2006, they had became parents to three children and Michael and the family moved to Lancaster, California, where he was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base. Michael served our country for 12 years. This included two tours in Iraq, of course, this being post 9-11, which prompted an increase in military readiness and a call for military response to the attacks, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And Michael was absolutely willing and ready to go. He wanted to go. He wanted to be overseas and he wanted to serve his country. Like I said, he thrived. After a dozen years of service in 2011, he decided to discharge from the military and took a civilian job, still with the Air Force, in what's best described as the equivalent of human resources. And by all accounts, he enjoyed the desk job with the dress shirts and ties just as well, quickly making friends with his newfound co-workers. But all was not well on the home front. Michael and Crescene, it seemed, had grown distant. Remember, they were young when they got married. They quickly had children, one, two, three of them. And Michael, for a good portion of their marriage, was in other parts of the world. And it just wasn't holding up, and the couple ended their marriage, officially separating towards the end of 2014. And according to Crescene, the separation was amicable and mutual. It was a process, learning how to be apart from one another after 14 years and three kids, learning how to parent apart while maintaining a positive relationship with one another. And we all know that that can sometimes be difficult to do. They did care for each other deeply, and so that made the transition a little bit easier, I'm certain. So for the sake of the kids, they were making it work communicating pretty much on a daily basis and keeping up with their children. Michael ended up leasing an apartment a short distance away from the family home, wanting to stay as close as possible. And this would mark a new phase in Michael's life. For the first time in 15 years, he was essentially single, though the divorce wasn't exactly finalized yet. Getting back into the dating scene, wasn't all that easy for Michael, understandably. He began questioning things like having these kids. He's in his mid-30s by then. He's thinking perhaps he was a bit over the hill to start all over. Is anyone going to want to date him? He was going into this with a great deal of trepidation, as it had been a long time. He went straight from high school to the Air Force to meeting Crescene, to marriage in a matter of two years. So this was going to be a whole new thing for him. According to his friends, the breakdown of his marriage took a toll on his confidence and his self-esteem. The prospect of rejection was a very difficult place for Michael to contemplate being. But by the following year, in July of 2015, while online, he met a lovely young woman named Monique. She was about 10 years younger than him. They had spoken online for a few days before they finally met for their very first date. And according to Michael's brother, Monique was his first girlfriend following his divorce. 
and they seemed to hit it off right away from the start. He was excited about the new relationship, and they were very, very much into each other. And the one big, huge thing that they shared in common, despite their age difference, was the fact that they were both parents. Monique was a mother to one son of her own, and they both embraced each other's respective roles in the lives of each other's kids. But within six months of beginning a relationship with Monique, Michael quickly put the skids on moving forward with her for, it seems, for his own personal reasons. That he didn't feel like he was ready to be in such a serious relationship so soon after the end of his marriage, though he did care for Monique and her son. Being single was so new to him, and they did remain friends even after they stopped being romantically involved. His brother would speculate that Michael was still trying to find his own way, on his own, in this new phase of his life. A big stressor for Michael was having to deal with the cost of living as well, wanting to stay close, and being able to afford an apartment on his own, a nice place so the kids would be comfortable when they visited, as well as taking care of them in the way that he really wanted to. He didn't want to raise them in a tiny little place. He wanted a home for them when they were with him. Growing up, he and his brothers lived in a small place with their mom, and they were made to sleep on bunk beds, and he just didn't want that for his boys. It was a lot on his plate. But good news came at the beginning of 2016 when he got an approval for a loan to buy a house for himself and his kids, and he was set to move in towards the end of March. He was very excited about the prospect of being able to finally settle down again after his life and living situation had been in limbo. Things were very much looking bright on the horizon for Michael. He was pleased he was going to be able to pick up the pieces of his life post-divorce, and he was doing it all on his own. He was really proud to be able to provide for his children, and it wasn't going to be a repeat of the situation in which he and his two siblings were raised. That was really important to him. And this too may be a part of the reason for wanting and needing to distance himself from the relationship that he had with Monique. It wasn't necessarily anything about her other than the fact that he had reached a crossroads in his life. He needed to figure things out. He needed to settle down. He needed to provide for his kids first. And he probably felt like the pressures of delving into a serious relationship that involved another child just wasn't the right thing for him at that point in his life. Perhaps down the road, but once the excitement and fun and games of a brand new romance sort of died down a little bit, it was time to get the priorities straightened out, get all his ducks in a row, and he needed to put the children first and his own needs on the back burner. So back to the timeline on that Saturday, March 5th, 2016, the day of his middle son's basketball game. They finished having lunch around 3 that afternoon, and he headed over to Crescene's house to drop the kids off with her for the remainder of the weekend. He had plans later that evening with a friend from work named Jamie. She had plans with some of her friends to watch the UFC fights that night, and they were going to drive down to Hermosa Beach, California, a two-hour drive from where they lived in Lancaster. 
Jamie had invited him the day before just as they were getting off work. She just told him that he was more than welcome to join them for the fights. Even though he didn't know his co-workers' friends, she knew that he was social and charismatic enough to be able to fit right in with ease. So about an hour after dropping off his kids with their mom, Michael began the two-hour drive down to Hermosa to meet Jamie and her friends at a local bar that was showing the fight. Out of curiosity, I looked it up, and it was a pay-per-view fight that night at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas with co-main events Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz and UFC women's bantamweight champion Holly Holm versus Misha Tate. So while on the drive, Michael chatted with both of his brothers on the phone, Tyler, who lived clear across the country in Baltimore, Maryland, and Charles, who lived with their mom still in Michigan. According to brother Tyler, Michael was a huge UFC fan. It was one of his favorite things to watch, and he was excited to have been invited to watch with some friends. He also gave Monique a call. She just so happened to be in Las Vegas that weekend, and they just chatted, some small talk, just to see what she was up to, how she was doing, stuff like that. Jamie and her friends rented a hotel room at the Quality Inn in Hermosa. They didn't want to have to make the two-hour drive home after the fights and possibly some drinks, so Michael decided to park his car in the parking garage of the hotel. I've said it before in past episodes. These beachfront communities have very impacted parking situations, especially on these nights where pay-per-view fights are being broadcasted. The best thing to do if you want to go to dining and entertainment districts is to take a Lyft or an Uber, which is exactly what Michael did. He left his car where he felt it would be safe to do so at Jamie's hotel and took an Uber to meet up with her and her friends at a pub and grill called The Underground. Jamie and her three friends had already been drinking for a couple of hours already by the time Michael arrived, and he was quick to join in. His friends all described Michael as having a very outgoing and fun-loving personality with a great sense of humor, and he's soon getting everyone laughing and joking with the antics that he's known for. By 10 p.m., the fights were over, and the five friends decided to do some bar hopping. They first got in line at a place called the American Junkie, but for some reason, Michael became rather impatient or perhaps restless, not too long after they got in line. Jamie would say that Michael is the type of person who does not like waiting in lines of any kind, describing him as having a hard time standing still, especially when he's out wanting to have a good time. So Michael spots a liquor store nearby and told his friends that he's going to head over there to use the restroom. Michael's case was featured on an episode of Disappeared on the Investigation Discovery Channel. And when I first heard that he was going to try to head into a liquor store to use the bathroom, my very first thought was that it would be really weird and rare if he was able to access any kind of public restroom in nearby businesses that wasn't a bar or a restaurant because they usually don't offer facilities to the public, especially in these areas with lots of bars open late, people drinking, walking around, just no, it's not really a thing. 
and later on in the episode, it turned out that he didn't find a restroom to use there. So anyway, he told Jamie and company that he was going to head over there. He'd meet back up with them in a few minutes, like no big deal. As Michael walked away from the group of friends, none of them had any idea that they would never see Michael ever again. As Jamie and her friends were standing in line, several minutes passed and they did not see Michael come back from the liquor store. He said he was only going in to use the restroom. It shouldn't have taken that long. I don't know how long the four friends waited, but they ended up deciding to get out of the line at American Junkie and move on to another establishment. Jamie called and texted Michael's phone, but has stated that he did not respond to her text and the calls were going directly to his voicemail without ringing. She wanted to let him know that they were going to a different bar. They weren't in line anymore, but they were literally one door over, not far at all. The group continued on though, going from bar to bar, but all the while, Jamie continued to keep an eye out for Michael but she failed to spot him anywhere. She would say that it would not be unusual for Michael to have a run-in with a group of people and just suddenly join in with them and do whatever they were up to. She would say that Michael's dipped out before and gone off on his own. I don't doubt that this isn't true about Michael. She is, of course, friends with him. She knows what his personality and his behaviors are like but it does seem a little odd to do so and not let his friends know. However, if his phone is going straight to voicemail, that could mean his battery is dead, or maybe something's wrong with his phone, or maybe something's wrong with Michael. We will talk about that when we speculate about what happened to him. So Jamie just jumped to the conclusion that maybe he met someone, perhaps he was chatting it up with the woman that he met, or maybe he just so happened to run into an acquaintance and just joined in with them. She really didn't find herself to be all that concerned in the moment. He drove down there on his own, so you know, it's like, whatever. But still, she is slightly concerned. And as time passed and she still hadn't seen or heard from Michael, she continued to try and call and text, but still no response. And then she began to get frustrated. It's not like him to not answer, and she wants to hear from him. And the fact that his phone was going straight to voicemail is making her crazy because it's never a thing with him. So it bugged her a lot. Before long, it's two in the morning and the bars were closing down. The four friends make their way back to the Quality Inn they went and checked the parking garage to see if Michael had taken off with his vehicle, but no, it was still parked in the spot where he left it. So now they're worried. Bars are closed. There's really no other place to go at this hour. He hasn't gotten his car, so where is he? When Jamie saw his car, she got a very sinking feeling. A dreadful feeling that something was going terribly wrong here. By the afternoon of the next day, Sunday, March 6th, 
There is still no sign of Michael. He has not turned up anywhere, and nobody has heard word one from him. Jamie had to leave Hermosa, though, and as she made her way back towards Lancaster, her worry for Michael is getting deeper and deeper the further behind she leaves her friend. Once she got back to her place, she started going down the checklist of places that she could think of that Michael might be. She called every local jail and hospital she could find in and around the Hermosa Beach area and still came up empty. No Michael. Not a hint as to where he was or what became of him. Later on that Sunday evening, still weighing heavily on her mind, Jamie headed over to Michael's apartment just to check and see if he happened to come home and just didn't tell anyone for some reason. But his car wasn't in the parking lot. She tried knocking on the door several times, but still received no answers. And meanwhile, Monique, still over in Las Vegas, had tried texting Michael earlier in the day on Sunday, but she too received no response from him. She tried again several hours later to text him after they arrived back home from Vegas, asking him if he had lost his phone. Now, there's nothing really funny at all about this story, but that still seemed like a silly question to me, because how was he supposed to answer that if he lost his phone? Well, she's just assuming, wondering why he's not answering. It seemed out of character, so to her, it was either lost or dead. She just didn't know. Michael's brother Tyler attempted to give him a call that same day as well, and his call was also directed straight to voicemail. And it would be the following day, on Monday, March 7th, that things really became concerning. You see, Michael's middle son, Jaden, he had an appointment to have some oral surgical procedure completed, and Michael needed to provide some insurance documentation to Crescene to bring with her to the appointment, but he failed to show up. So for something this important, it was unlike him to just flake out. Crescene was now joining in the bevy of individuals attempting to get in touch with Michael, calling, texting, with all the same results. No answer, and calls going directly to voicemail. Of course, in the moment, Crescene isn't thinking much of it, Michael not answering, assuming like everyone else that Michael's phone is dead. So she went ahead and took Jaden to his appointment. And while she was seated in the dentist's office waiting room, she contacted both Michael's brother Tyler and his former girlfriend Monique. She texted Monique asking if she happened to be over at Michael's apartment. She wasn't, so she answered no, but offered to go by to see if he was there or if she could find the paperwork that she needed for the oral surgery. To which Crescene said yes, if she could do that, that'd be great. So Monique went over to his place. She noticed that his car wasn't there. And I'm assuming that she had a key, so she let herself in to take a look around. It didn't look like he had been there recently, but nothing really looked out of place either. Though, still, no Michael. Crescene finally decided to call Michael's workplace to speak to his boss. And this is when she got some very worrying news. 
Michael had failed to show up for work. No show, no call. Very, very uncharacteristic of Michael, who has always been dependable, reliable, and dedicated. He wouldn't not show up for work without letting someone know. He was rarely even late, so to not show up? No way. Unless something was very, very wrong. The worry immediately swept over Crescene. She knew. This wasn't right. A short time later, Jamie, who also worked at the same office as Michael, called their boss and he informed her as well that Michael hadn't shown up. But out of curiosity, her boss asked her why she was calling, telling her that Crescene had just called a little earlier, also looking for Michael. So now, Jamie is realizing that she isn't the only one who can't seem to track him down. That's when she knew that he wasn't just out of touch. He was missing. She told her boss that she had to go. She needed to go file a missing persons report. She made her official report there in Kern County where they worked, even though he technically went missing in Los Angeles County. The fact is, is he could be anywhere. So as soon as Jamie did that, she got in touch with Christine and explained to her what happened two nights earlier in Hermosa Beach and how they went to watch the fight. They started the bar hop afterwards. Michael split from the group to use the bathroom, but never came back. And she was never able to get through to him on his phone. Tyler, meanwhile, on the opposite coast in Baltimore, has also become worried about his brother. That same Monday, he spent the bulk of the day going back and forth between Crescene and Monique, trying to figure out what was going on with Michael. While nothing seemed to be turning up in Lancaster, Monique decided to make the two-hour trek to Hermosa to see if she could possibly find him. And the first place she headed once she arrived in Hermosa was the Quality Inn. She discovered his car still parked in the same spot that he had left it when he made his way down there two nights earlier. Monique peered in through the window and saw his work access badge so that he could get on base. It was in plain sight. She figured he must be someplace in the Hermosa Beach area and never moved his vehicle. The next place Monique went was to the local police station and requested to speak to someone about Michael's apparent disappearance. A detective came out to the lobby to speak with her, but all he really had to say about it is what we've heard said about many missing adult men. He's a grown man. He has free will to make his own decisions. He has the right to go missing if he wants to, and they are unable to consider him a missing person until a set amount of time has passed. Come back after that amount of time if he hasn't already turned up. The frustration was overwhelming. That was not what Monique wanted or expected to hear from the detective. Of course, Michael's friends, family, and loved ones know him best, and they know that this is very unlike him, just to up and drop out like this. But police have their policies, and just as Jamie had done the day prior, Monique got in her car and drove away from Hermosa Beach, headed back to Lancaster, not knowing Michael's whereabouts, 
and not being able to get any help from police. It was a very sinking and overwhelmingly defeated feeling. And not only that, she was left with very little encouragement, no closer to getting any answers, afraid that she and the rest of the people who know and care about Michael aren't going to be able to figure this out. Crescene, on that same Monday, came to the heartbreaking decision to tell the kids that something very wrong was going on with their dad. She broke down into tears, having to do what she described as one of the worst things she'd ever had to do in her life. Tell the three children that their dad was missing. Despite the fact that it had only been two days, she just had that gut feeling that this was not going to end well. Little did she know now, more than two and a half years later, that there's still no end. That same Monday night, everyone who was looking for Michael, all of his friends and family, got to the one place that they know that they could spread the word that they are searching for Michael far and wide very quickly. Social media. And the story of Michael's disappearance spread very quickly. So much so, having gone viral, his name was trending on Facebook within hours of their posts. In the meantime, both of Michael's brothers, Tyler and Charles, booked flights to California for the following day. The two of them, along with Monique and Crescene, were going to Hermosa Beach, and they were not leaving until they had looked in every single possible corner of the city for Michael. Not finding him was not an option. They were just not going to accept that he was lost like this. Not a chance. On the morning of Tuesday, March 8th, closing in on three days since Jamie last saw Michael walking away from her and her friends headed towards that liquor store, the four of them, brothers Tyler and Charles, and the exes, Monique and Crescene, made their way back into the Hermosa Beach Police Department, and they were able to meet with a detective. Now that more than 48 hours have passed, the detective is concerned as well, and is ready and willing to file their report and begin an investigation. They first started off the same way that Jamie had. They contacted all the local law enforcement agencies, jails, and hospitals to see if Michael had been taken or arrived at any of those places. Nothing. So next they went to investigate the area where Michael was last known to have been, talked to some of the local businesses to see if there was anything that could give them a place to start from, a direction to head in. Tyler told them a place that they might start looking is on the beach, possibly in the ocean. But they told him, unless someone reported seeing him going into the water, they really couldn't justify a search that extensive. That requires all kinds of other resources, so they can't do that without cause. And that frustrated Tyler, as there was an aspect of his brother that led him to suspect that maybe he had gone into the water, and I will explain that in a little bit. They made up missing persons flyers and hung them everywhere possible that they could think of. They spoke to as many of the employees and local businesses as they could, especially at the places he was known to have gone into or could have possibly gone into that Saturday night. 
but no one they spoke to could specifically remember seeing Michael that night, which isn't a surprise. It was very crowded and very busy, and there wasn't anything about Michael that would have necessarily caused him to stand out from the average guy out that night. Detectives also wanted to speak with the four people that Michael had been out with that night, watching the UFC fights and followed up with the bar hopping. They began with Jamie, the only one of them who actually knew Michael. She explained to the detective pretty much the exact story that I've recounted for you here in this episode. They also spoke to two out of the three others that he was with that evening, and they had pretty much the same exact story as well, corroborating what Jamie had said, offering the police nothing in the way of any new leads to follow. Next, in an attempt to track Michael's movements and actions that evening, detectives retrieved Michael's cell phone records and began tracing the times and locations of each of his phone pings. And they came to find that the last place his phone pinged anywhere was in the downtown Hermosa Beach area, and the last time it ever pinged was 9.45 p.m. that night. This fact corroborates pretty much what everyone had stated about that Saturday night. Nobody was able to reach him by phone or text after 10 p.m. And finally, the last and most puzzling, and you will come to find frustrating aspects of this case involving Michael's disappearance, was the surveillance footage. Cameras are mounted everywhere around the Hermosa Beach Plaza where the group of friends had been bar hopping that night. And if those of you who have seen or heard about the surveillance footage I spoke about earlier in the Brian Schaefer case, with him seeming to have dropped off the face of the earth pretty much in view of cameras, this case with Michael is even more confounding, exasperating, and completely vexing. And I'm going to try to go through it step by step as best as I can for you, so hopefully you can gain some insight as to how utterly maddening it is to watch the evening unfold in the silent scope of these images. And I will walk you through all of what was found in just a little bit. So the city of Hermosa Beach has their own surveillance system set up and it extensively covers the Pier Plaza area where all of those bars were located, where Michael was last located. Detectives also checked with each individual business as they too have their own proprietary surveillance systems as well. So once they identified Michael in the footage, it was going to require detectives to pour over hundreds and hundreds of hours of video to track his movements. And with this information in hand, they were hoping to be able to determine in which direction Michael went once he stepped out of line and parted ways with his friends. Meanwhile, as police are tasked with looking through all of those video images, as Tyler, Charles, Monique, and Crescene are canvassing Hermosa Beach, searching for Michael and passing out their flyers, all the major local news outlets have picked up on this story as well. And the news is getting out there about his disappearance. And they were interviewing the four of them for their segments about Michael. And with that, their hopes are riding on that the spike in news coverage about Michael will spark the memory of someone, anyone who may have encountered him that night, to give them a solid place to start from, because they have no idea where to even begin. The following day on March 9th, four days since Michael went missing, 
detectives spotted something promising on surveillance. They thought that they had spotted Michael making contact with someone who looked like one of the friends from Jamie's group that they were all out with that night. This took place at 11.42 p.m. on that Saturday the 5th. They saw who appeared to be one of the friends walk up to who appeared to be Michael and the two of them hugged. They stand there talking for a bit and then they are seen interacting with a completely new set of people. Then they all walk off together, headed east, out of view of this particular camera that caught this interaction. Now, right away when I'm seeing this, I found it to be suspect because Michael didn't know Jamie's friends prior to that evening, so why would they hug like that, right? They probably wouldn't, so that right there would lead me to think that the detectives are misidentifying the people in these images. But Michael's family and friends, hopeful that this could be a good lead to begin with, begin to wonder who all these people were, and were they some people that Michael knew, and did he encounter someone else that night? And what's more, that friend of Jamie's, who they suspect is the one seen on the surveillance having this interaction with Michael, he is not answering the detective's phone calls, nor is he calling them back. So they are becoming increasingly suspicious of this one friend of Jamie's. And Michael's loved ones are desperately grasping to the hope that this lead will bring about some answers. Because the thought is that maybe he just up and left to, for whatever reason, be with a new set of friends. Maybe he's with them. Maybe he just needed to take a break from life. As unusual as that sounds, this is their best hope at this point. It wouldn't be until two days later that Hermosa Beach investigators finally heard back from the friend that they think may have information about Michael's whereabouts. They asked him to recount the evening with the group that he was with and his story, just like Jamie's and the other two friends, is pretty much exactly the same. However, during the course of the conversation, he does not bring up having encountered Michael later on that evening at the time marker on the surveillance. 11.42 p.m. with that mysterious group of people that they hooked up with. Investigators had already been suspicious just due to the fact that this friend had taken so long to get in touch with police. Now he's seemingly withholding information. So detectives take another day or two to look more closely at the images of the two men on the video surveillance. Slowing it down, blowing it up, enhancing it, they were finally able to conclude that, despite looking eerily similar, these images were not of Michael and Jamie's friend. Very, very close, but no cigar. This lead was a dead end and another huge disappointment for Michael's family and friends. The hope that he might be taking a break from life with an unknown group of friends was shot down, and they resigned themselves to being back at square one no closer to finding Michael than they were when he first went missing. It was closing in on one week since he walked away from his friends in that line. Walked away and never came back. Investigators decided to shift the course of their investigation to include the other side of the plaza, away from the bar area, over to where the beach and pier are located, as they have exhausted the search near the bars and businesses. Could he have ended up in the water 
Anything is possible at this point because they aren't finding him anywhere on land. They hit the beach both by foot and by air. Charles combed the shoreline with a metal detector, hoping to find anything that might indicate Michael had been there. Maybe his keys, anything that could be linked to him. Tyler and Christine hired a helicopter to pilot them over the area. They scoured the area all day, hoping that they would find something. Knowing in the back of their minds that if they're searching over water, they're searching for a body. At the end of that day, they didn't. They didn't find a body. They didn't find Michael. They didn't find anything. The search led to nothing. Still, frustratingly stuck at square one. Meanwhile, Monique had downloaded an app to her phone that allowed her to monitor police radio transmissions so she could listen in and determine if anything alarming were to be sent over their frequencies. And she did hear one promising call go out over the radio from the neighboring Manhattan Beach Police Department that a drunk man with a description that matches Michael's was being detained. She made note of the location and the intersections and she jumped in her car and made a beeline to where this arrest was taking place. But as she was driving and continuing to listen to the police transmissions, they were giving more updates about this man's description and she is beginning to realize that she's chasing ghosts. Defeated again, hopes dashed, questions with still no answers. And same for the search along the beach. Hours and hours spent staring at sand, hoping for it to give up some clues his keys, his wallet, his phone, someplace on this vast beach, hoping it would give them something. But still, nothing. You see, his family can't shake that haunting feeling that he may have gone into the ocean. Nobody saw him going in. Nobody reported seeing anybody going in that night. It would have been relatively cool that evening, with the lows in Hermosa Beach at that time of the evening averaging around 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius, with the water temperature being slightly higher than that, but not by much. So would he have gone in? I'm not sure. If he was drinking? Yeah, that tends to warm a person up. Emboldens you at times, I'm sure. But his family seems to feel it was a very real possibility. They all report that Michael loved being in the water. Remember, he grew up on that lake in Michigan, right? And Crescene would even go so far as to say, as much as he loved the water all the time, he super loved the water when he had been drinking. As she recalled him taking a dip in the ocean late at night after an evening of drinking while they were on vacation in Hawaii. She didn't like the idea because you really couldn't see anything, but she just wasn't going to put it past him. Brother Tyler had a very similar story to Crescene's about two months earlier when they had met up in San Diego where Tyler was in town for a golf tournament. So Tyler had gone to bed early because, you know, those golfers like to get out there at ungodly hours of the morning. And in the middle of the night, Tyler was awakened by a knock at the door. 
It was Michael, clad in nothing but his boxers, dripping wet. He had been out drinking and he decided to go for a dip in the Pacific Ocean. When he emerged, he was unable to locate his clothing or his possessions that he left in a pile on the beach. So, after Tyler helped him get dried off and dressed, he went out to the beach to help his brother find his stuff, which he did, and he went back to bed. Only to be reawakened again, another half hour later, with a soaking wet Michael standing at his door, having taken another dip in the ocean. He was like, dude, you need to be careful about going into the ocean after you've been drinking. Pacific may mean peaceful, but this is no small lake in Michigan. You can get sucked out in a riptide and drown because of exhaustion and drunkenness. And this is why they were certain that Michael going into the ocean was quite a real possibility. But their searches yielded nothing. No abandoned pile of clothing. No phone. No wallet. No keys. And most importantly, no body. He would have been spotted floating in the water from the air. Or he would have washed up onto the shore. So, still standing at square one. Two weeks into the police investigation, they had made some significant progress. They made a positive identification of Michael in the video surveillance. Now, they were going to be able to track his movements minute by minute. And with this, they were going to be able to put together a comprehensive timeline of the night in the plaza all the way up until the last moment he has ever seen on video. Investigators identified the group of five, including Michael, starting at the point where they all arrived at the line outside of the American Junkie Bar. They spotted Michael, they spotted Jamie, and they spotted her three friends. Next, the moment that Michael decided to walk away from the line and head towards the liquor store, is also captured on this video. He is clearly seen walking away, just as his friends had reported. And remember, this was the last time they ever saw him. But this wasn't going to be the last time video cameras saw him. Michael was alone. Nobody else was around him as he headed towards the liquor store. The video surveillance from inside the liquor store is much more clear and he is seen coming in through the front door michael was inside the store for about one minute he walked towards the back but he is unable to use the restroom like i had speculated earlier it does not appear he spoke to anyone inside the store he did not ask the employees if he could use the bathroom it just looks like he came in he went down a hallway or a corridor and didn't enter the bathroom. I don't know if it was locked or if there was a sign that said no public restroom. Probably both. He was then seen exiting the liquor store through the same door in which he entered. Now, going back to the outside surveillance. This is the moment he would become separated from his group of friends. Once he is captured on the outdoor surveillance video, the same one that captured him going in, 
instead of heading back to the group of friends who can still be seen waiting in line, Michael veered off to the right, to the opposite direction of where his friends were. He was still alone. He passed by the front of a Bank of America adjacent to the liquor store. And this is where he reached a corner that the bank is situated on. At the corner, Michael hung another right, continued walking southbound on what is Hermosa Boulevard. The group, still in line, still in view of the camera, did not notice Michael walking out of the liquor store, nor did they see him walk towards the corner and out of their view. It's been speculated that Michael was continuing to look for a bathroom to use. But while he was doing this, in the window of the minutes that he had walked off, his group of friends stepped out of line to go to a different bar. I'm sure they assumed that they would have been able to get in touch with him to let him know where they were. We're also connected these days, right? Well, maybe not. So, the group and Michael literally missed seeing each other by a matter of just a few seconds. A few steps. Because just as the friends had turned their backs to begin walking away, in the exact same surveillance frame, Michael can be seen rounding the corner of the bank, heading back towards the line where he last saw his friends. Literally seconds. The moment the group left the frame, Michael entered the frame. He is seen approaching the line and it is clear that he is looking for his friends. He doesn't spot them, so he began searching for them. And for the next couple hours, Michael's group of friends are seen numerous times on surveillance as they continued along their bar hop. Sometime later, Michael was then seen returning to the same liquor store he was in earlier to purchase a small bottle of whiskey. And something also becomes apparent in the images of this revisit to the liquor store. The reason why Michael isn't answering his phone or responding to texts. He can be seen taking his phone out of his pocket. And it's a smartphone. The screen is very clear on the video. Of course, you can't see what's on the screen of the phone. However, you would be able to see it light up. And what you can see is that Michael is unable to power on his phone. The screen won't light up. You can see him trying to push the button, trying to get it to turn on, but it won't. His phone's dead. Then you can see him slip the phone back into his pocket, pay for his purchases, and walk back out into the plaza. And you know, he probably had no idea what his friend's phone numbers were, right? It's all in our phones. It's a thing that we don't have to clutter our brains with any longer, memorizing all of our contacts. Our phones do it for us, if our phone is alive. So he probably wouldn't have been able to contact any of them, even if he were able to borrow a phone. And most frustrating of all, aside from Michael being gone, is this fact. Police were able to isolate 
several moments throughout the night and looking through all of the hours of video footage where Michael and his group of friends had barely missed seeing each other. So painfully close to almost running into one another, never leading us to be here today, wondering where in the world he went. But here we are. The group of friends were seen on surveillance passing by the spot that they had previously been in line at the American Junkie Bar and headed in the same exact direction, literally seconds behind them, walking right on top of where they just walked. Literal seconds. You can see them in front of him, just feet away, but he's not noticing them. And of course, all of their backs are turned to him. Can you imagine? They're walking in the same direction with maybe 50 feet between them, within shouting distance, even less. And he's just not noticing. And it appeared that he was looking for them because investigators tracked him doing circles around the place, looking around. And he's just not looking in front of him. I guess that would be too obvious. He's looking all around. He's scanning the crowds. He's checking out the lines. He can't find them. And the very last time Michael is ever seen on any surveillance footage is at exactly 11.27 p.m. He can be seen walking by himself. There are very few people around him. The video was dark and a bit grainy. He was leaving the plaza, leaving all the bars and all the people, headed in the direction of the beach. There are no cameras mounted out there. And he strolled out of view of the camera into the darkness and is gone from the lives of his family and loved ones just gone and even if the suspicions of his family and friends are correct and he did go off into the water they feel like they would have found his stuff and his belongings that was the way he did things in the past and they figured that if he had drowned he would have washed up though the coast guard did say that based on the weather patterns the night that he went missing and the current it is possible that he could have been swept outwards away from shore and drowned. After two weeks with no answers, Michael's brother Tyler took a long walk along that beach, searching, thinking, contemplating, until he just couldn't walk any further. And he just stared at the water as there was nothing else that he could do. There was nowhere else to look. And three weeks after Michael went missing, the Hermosa Beach detectives told him that they've done all that they could. They've chased down every lead. Everything was a dead end. And they needed to pull back their investigation. They needed to pull back their resources. While leaving the case open, they couldn't actively continue searching. They've done all that they could. Michael's brother and his ex-wife decided to go ahead and pack up his apartment and move him out. 
And Monique spent a final night there while she too heartbreakingly helped to pack up his things. It terrified all of them that he would somehow show up at his place and find all of his things gone. And for months to come, hopes got raised only to be crushed by bits of news trickling in. Bodies washing up on the beach. None of them are Michael. Random activity on his bank account turns out to be fraud. And as more time passed with nothing new, the family and loved ones, for the most part, settle on the likely scenario that he drank, he went into the water, he drowned, and he washed away into the vast Pacific. But they haven't closed themselves off to the idea that he's somewhere in the world simply not wanting to be found. Five months later, his brother Tyler made the move across the country from Baltimore to Hermosa Beach, his main purpose, of course, to be there for Michael's three kids. And they've been able to bond with him, and he's become an integral part of theirs and Crescene's life. So, what happened to Michael Van Zandt? I mentioned a couple of theories out there. There's the one that seems to be the most popular theory, the one that the family seems to feel is most likely that having had some drinks, he decided to take a dip in the ocean and ended up being taken out too far by the current and drowned. The waters were rough that night, and he likely overestimated his abilities to handle the current. There are a couple of problems I have with this theory, though. First, it doesn't seem as though he had all that much to drink as the night wore on while he was looking for his friends. He appeared on surveillance footage circling the plaza, but there was no mention of him going back into any bars and continuing to drink. The only other drink he has seen or known to have gotten was one of those tiny bottles of whiskey from that liquor store. So I'm not sure he was make irrational decisions to jump into the ocean in the middle of the night levels of drunk. Also, I mentioned the nights in Hermosa in March are relatively cool, as is the water. His phone is dead. He can't find his friends. He didn't seem to have all that much to drink. And he isn't near his car. He's going to have to somehow catch a ride back to it. He doesn't have his phone to use his Uber app. Not to mention, if he did go into the water, his belongings weren't found. In the past, when he's gone for a dip, he's put his keys, phone, and wallet inside his shoe and put everything in a pile on the sand and go. But... No pile of his stuff was found. And most importantly, his body was never found. Bodies usually wash up on shore, but there is that chance that he was swept out to the ocean as well. But everything would have had to gone just right for all traces of him to be wiped away, his body along with his stuff. So for me, there are lots of question marks surrounding this theory. Then the idea has been floated that he simply walked off and is living someplace off the grid. It seems unlikely, but, you know, stranger things have happened, right? We think things like this happen in cases like Maura Murray, for example. It's known that she was struggling with some personal issues. She was forced to leave West Point because of shoplifting and then followed that up with some credit card trouble at UMass. She seemed to be in a rough patch with her boyfriend 
both of whom did not appear to be faithful to their commitment to one another. She was crashing cars all over town, not to mention the drinking. So that being said, it did not seem like a stretch to think that this young woman wanted to get the heck away from her life, which seemed to be crumbling all around her to try and start all over again. I'm not saying that I think this is what happened because I honestly don't think she would have been capable of it on her own. And if she had help from her dad, he's been doing a pretty damn good job of faking us all out for the past 14 and a half years. But what I am saying is it seemed from the outside looking in that Maura Murray was quite unhappy with the way things were going and starting over would be a plausible conclusion to jump to. But I don't get that feeling from Michael's story, though you have to consider the source. Just like Mora's episode of Disappeared, Michael's could have quite possibly have only told one side of the story as well. For all intents and purposes, he seemed to be coping well after being a year or so removed from the breakdown of his marriage. He paced himself, not getting too deeply involved in a new relationship too quickly, he seemed pretty devoted to his post-military career. He was set to close on a new home that he was able to buy on his own. He had three beautiful children, a family that cared about him deeply, and a seemingly full and active social life. If there were any signs that he was looking to dip out of life and start all over again someplace else, there didn't seem to be any indicators that he was in any way unhappy with the direction things were going. But you never know. What people show to the world and what is actually going on inside their hearts and in their minds could be two very different things. So one commenter on Reddit floated the idea that Michael met with foul play, that perhaps some kind of altercation took place at one of the bars mix in some booze, and you could have a recipe for a fight to take place. And it is not unheard of that an altercation takes place inside an establishment and those involved in the incident go outside to wait for the other party to exit so the confrontation can be picked up from where it left off because it's likely if the fight breaks out inside the bar, you're going to get tossed out. Remember back when we talked about former New England Patriot tight end and former convicted murderer and now deceased Aaron Hernandez and how he confronted people after leaving clubs? He'd watch them go to their vehicles and track them down. That's what I'm talking about. Taking the fight outside. Maybe Michael made someone mad and this person continued to track him as he circled the plaza that night. And maybe this is why Michael was going into different places. That he wasn't looking for his friends, but rather trying to shake this unknown person who was after him. And that there may be more than one of them. And that they waited until Michael was out of range and view of cameras and the crowds to do him some harm. And managed to hide his body really well, leaving no evidence behind at all. That seems like kind of a stretch to me, but... Since we don't know where Michael is, again, anything is possible. And the same Reddit commenter suggested that a similar fate could have happened if, say, Michael wanted to take his own life. If he somehow managed to leave no trace of himself behind whatsoever, which seems kind of hard to do. And again, 
and looking at what was going on in his life, it did not seem that Michael was in that desperate of a state of mind to commit suicide. But we just don't know. When Michael Van Zant went missing, he was 36 years old. He is described as a white male, 6 feet tall, or 1.83 meters, weighing 190 pounds, or 86.18 kilograms. He has blonde hair, but the night he went missing, he was completely bald, and he has blue eyes. He is known to have at least three tattoos, a picture of a tiger in the jungle on his left bicep and shoulder, a small image of Buddha on his back, and the name Keaton, that's K-E-A-T-O-N, in descending letters on his left calf. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Michael Van Zandt, please contact the Hermosa Beach Police Department at area code 310-318-0334. And that brings the 69th episode of California Dreaming to a close. But before I sign off with all the business, I need to give one more shout out to Amanda Whedon, who managed to squeeze in at the very, very last possible minute today. Your opinions are always welcomed and appreciated. Please join us on the Facebook discussion page where we will talk about this as well as all the other cases we've covered on any other crime related stuff you want to talk about, other podcasts that we are discovering, current events, whatever. Request to join and you shall be approved. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. You can contact the show directly by email at CaliforniaPod at gmail.com or message me directly on any of the social media platforms that I've mentioned. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I, for one, am so proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com where you can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening, and as always, until next time, sweet dreams.